Well, we're continuing this morning in the book of Acts. Uh, today we are in Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. In these verses, we're at the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. We saw uh, last week that Paul began his third journey by passing through the Galatian and Phrygian regions and strengthening the churches that had been started there in previous missionary journeys. And so while Paul was visiting these churches, Luke introduced us to a man named Apollos. He was from Alexandria, Egypt. He ends up being a man that the Lord used in significant ways in Corinth. And Paul actually mentions him multiple times in his first letter to the Corinthian church. Paul describes him as a servant of God. He is one that God used to bring about significant growth in the life of the Corinthian church. But before Paulos went to Corinth, he went to the city of Ephesus. He's described as an eloquent man, had great learning. He was mighty in the scriptures. That means, obviously, he had given attentive study to the scriptures. The Holy Spirit worked in his life to enable him to apply the word of God to his life. And as a result, he was fervent in spirit. He had a genuine zeal for the Lord. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and the gospel and... Uh, taught accurately about Jesus. But as Apollos began to speak at the synagogue in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla noticed there were some problems. They were fellow workers with Paul who had stayed in Ephesus whenever Paul returned to his home church in Antioch. And we're told that Apollos was acquainted only with the baptism of John, which leads us to what we're talking about today in a different light. But he clearly understood that Jesus was the Christ and apparently had some familiarity with his ministry, his death and resurrection, but there were definitely things that he did not know about. Aquila and Priscilla had learned well from Paul. They could be described, I think, as being mighty in the scriptures themselves. Probably wouldn't have the eloquence that, uh, that Apollos had in speaking, but still otherwise being mighty in the scriptures. So they were in the position to help Apollos. And they gave evidence of the fact, that is, Aquila and Priscilla, gave evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit had really manifested a gentleness in their life because they gently and privately took Apollos aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him, things he obviously did not know beforehand. This would be a very touchy kind of thing, I would think. And not only did Aquila and Priscilla handle it wisely, but Apollos as being one who was mighty in the scriptures, humbly received the things they told him. He had a true zeal for the Lord, therefore he was teachable. Well, Apollos then traveled to Corinth and had a significant gospel ministry there. Well, that's where Acts 19 picks up. So let's read Acts 19, verses 1 to 7. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. So Luke introduced 
Apollos to us as a key person that the Lord used in making disciples of the nations. But as I said, he also placed the story strategically of Apollos right before this encounter that Paul had with the Ephesian disciples because there's a connection there. They both speak of the baptism of John. Now, notice, by the way, here in the first verse of chapter 19 that we're told that it was while Apollos was in Corinth that Paul passed through the upper country and actually came into Ephesus himself. Well, you may remember that Paul had a long and productive ministry in Corinth. He stayed there for a year and a half. That's the longest at that point that he had stayed in any city. You might think that Paul might be tempted to be a little possessive or jealous uh, of maybe Apollo stepping in to the church that he had spent so much time and worked so hard to, to get started. But that was not the case at all. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said that both he and Paulos were servants of God. And, uh, and, and that the Corinthian church really came to faith in Christ ultimately through their ministries. Let me read for you some things he says about Apollos and himself in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. <clears throat> Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So they each had a role to play. Paul was the planter of the church. Apollos was watering the church. But again, he says God is the one who actually brought about the growth and continued to bring about the growth. So it's God himself is the one who gets the credit. And so Paul is really modeling for us a very mature and godly principle here for the church. He wants them to appreciate the people that God had brought into their lives to help them in the faith. He doesn't want them to choose sides on who was better. He just wants them to see it as God at work in their lives using various people to help them. So while Apollos is ministering in Corinth, we're told in Acts 19.1 that Paul makes his way then to, to Ephesus. He had traveled through those Galatian Phrygian regions, strengthening the churches there before he came to Ephesus. And remember that Paul had already been to Ephesus briefly. Uh, it was just after he had left Corinth, was on his way back to Antioch by way of Jerusalem. And he preached in the synagogue in Ephesus. They wanted him to stay longer, but he felt compelled to return to Jerusalem and then ultimately to Antioch first. He did say, though, if it's God's will, I will return, and obviously he does return. Well, at the beginning of his return to Ephesus, Luke tells us about a group of 12 men that he found there. There were some very unique things about them. And as Paul talked with them, he clearly began to have some concerns. He ends up asking them if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. Well, they said they didn't even know there was a, such a thing as the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a very odd thing from several angles. I mean, if they were Jews... There's multiple references to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But then they connect themselves with the baptism of John, but John also spoke of the Holy Spirit. So this is a very much out-of-the-ordinary kind of situation. 
In order to understand what's going on here, I think we need to talk about several things. So we're going to approach it from actually from three different angles. First, we need to consider what the ministry of John the Baptist was all about. So we'll take some time with the ministry of John the Baptist. Second, we need to talk about the Holy Spirit and his connection with Jesus Christ, because that's an obviously an issue here. And then third, we need to talk about the meaning of baptism, because that shows up several times in these verses. First, then we need to remind ourselves that the Lord used John the Baptist in, important, in the important ministry of preparing the way for people to believe in Jesus as the promised Christ. So as Paul speaks to these disciples he met in Ephesus, again, he, uh, he has some concerns. He speaks to them about the Holy Spirit. These means, men seem to have no understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Telling Paul they were baptized in John's baptism, Paul then gives a summary of John's ministry that was related very closely to his baptism, and that's what we read in verse 4. Paul said John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. So, Paul reminds us first then that John rightly called people to repent of their sin and believe in the Savior to come. Repent of their sin and believe in the Savior to come. Mark 1, we could read this from the other Gospels as well, but I'm just going to start here with Mark. Mark uh, 1, verses 1 to 5, tells us about John's ministry. It says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So hundreds of years before that time, before, before the time of Christ, uh, Isaiah and Malachi as well prophesied about a messenger that God would send to make ready the way of the Lord. He would come before the promised Messiah, prepare the people for his coming, and he did this by calling them to repent, to come to the Lord for forgiveness of their sins. While many in Judea came out to John, responded to the message, they were confessing their sins, they were being baptized by John, but of course this was not an end in itself. John continued to press the point that there was one who was coming after him who was far superior to John. This was the Messiah that, the, that, the, that the, the prophets spoke of multiple times. So John was clearly preparing the way for the people to receive the Messiah when he did appear. Well, connection with this, next point we see is the Lord revealed to John that Jesus was the Christ, confirmed it when he saw the Spirit descending on him as a dove. So as John was baptizing in the Jordan River, Jesus comes to John to be baptized. Well, the Lord enabled John to know that this was the Messiah that he was pointing everyone toward. John felt unworthy to baptize him, but Jesus insisted. And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove, which was further confirmation of who he was. So John knew without a doubt that Jesus was the Christ, and he made that clear to everyone listening to him. Next. John's ministry was highly regarded by Luke and continues to help and encourage people. So 
John made it very clear, like we said, that he was not the Christ. He was just adamant about that. He said he was not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. But his ministry was a very important one. The Lord spoke again, like we said, through the prophets Malachi, through Isaiah, about his ministry specifically as coming ahead, preparing the way. Well, Jesus says later also that John was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy about Elijah coming to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That was fulfilled by John as well. So John was a very significant person that God used to put a spotlight on the Messiah. And Luke recognizes the important contributions that John made as well because John the Baptist shows up four other times in Acts besides the one place that we're looking right now. <clears throat> uh, first, he tells us in Acts chapter 1 about how Jesus referred to John's ministry as he spoke to the, to the apostles there in Acts 1. In Acts 11, we are told that Peter recalled the ministry of John whenever he was report, reporting to the other apostles about how the Lord had, uh, had, had used him to, to bring salvation to the Cornelius and his family. Well, John, uh, Peter actually refers to John's ministry in that. In Acts 13, Luke tells us about how Paul referred to John the Baptist's ministry in his sermon to the Jews at Pisidian Antioch, which means, therefore, that Paul probably included John in most of his synagogue sermons because that sermon was really just a, a sample for us of what, what John's ministry, of what Paul's ministry usually was in the synagogues. Well, then, of course, Luke alludes to John the Baptist's ministry when he was speaking of Apollos in the verses right before this. So Luke himself understood the importance of what the Lord did through John, and his life and ministry really are a great example to us. And it's understandable that people would latch on to John and continue to hold him in high regard, apparently some even in a higher regard than Jesus Christ, which is the very opposite of what John taught. One commentary I read is that there were groups who were closely aligned, who closely aligned themselves with John the Baptist well into the 4th century, who, who held tightly to John and as, as in, in a very unhealthy kind of way. Well, let's move now to our second main point. The ministry of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are vitally connected. So the people Paul talked to are described by Luke in verse 1 as being disciples. It's a term, of course, that speaks of people who have put their faith in and have committed their life to Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Lord. They are his disciples. But as the conversation goes forward, it's cloudy whether they were true disciples of Christ. Well, as we noted, Paul noticed some things that didn't add up as he spoke with these men. And so he asked them about the Holy Spirit and about their baptism. Could it, could it be possible to be a disciple of Christ with no relationship to the Holy Spirit at all? Well, they end up getting baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a very obvious way. So Paul made it very clear there were definite connections between faith in Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I think it'd be helpful for us to think about some of those connections here. First is this. The Holy Spirit caused Mary to be pregnant with Jesus, anointed Jesus as the Christ, 
at his baptism by John and assisted him in his life and ministry. So, of course, as we think about this, this kind of moves us into a little bit of thinking about the Trinity. I mean, God exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So there is a divine and eternal oneness of being between the Son and the Spirit, as well as the Father, but between the Son and the Spirit. But as we, and as we look at Jesus' ministry on earth, the Holy Spirit is clearly an inseparable part of what Christ did on earth. First we see in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit was involved in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ from the moment of his conception. Next, we have already seen the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus when he was being baptized by John the Baptist. This was a public sign that Jesus was the anointed one. He was the Christ. And Jesus also affirmed that it was by the anointing of the Holy Spirit that he was able to fulfill all the things that were part of his messianic office. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus read from Isaiah 61, and here's what he said. He said he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. The prophecy starts this way. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So it was the Spirit of the Lord who anointed Jesus, really, for every aspect of his ministry. And, of course, we know that Jesus was supported by the Spirit when he was, when he was in the wilderness and being tempted by Satan. We also see, interesting enough, the work of the Spirit when Christ was resurrected. Romans 8.11 speaks of the Spirit as the one who raised Christ from the dead. Now, to be clear, we're also told that God the Father raised him from the dead. And Jesus himself said, I lay down my life that I may take it again. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. So the resurrection of Christ really was the work of the triune God, including the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was vitally connected with every aspect of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. You can't separate the Spirit from Christ. A second connection with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is this. Jesus Christ promised to send the Holy Spirit as the helper and then poured forth the Spirit on the believers at Pentecost. So when Jesus was with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, he did a number of things to, uh, to encourage them. And here's one of the things he said to them. This is from John 16, verse 6 and 7. He says, Behold, I have said these things to you, and sorrow has filled your heart. Of course, he'd been talking about his coming death. And he says, Because of that, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit as the helper for the disciples, for all Christians. Luke reiterates this promise in Acts chapter 1. There in Acts 1, Luke quotes Jesus as saying, 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Of course, then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in power on the believers who were gathered in Jerusalem. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, evidenced by speaking in unknown languages and prophesying. And as you know, Peter stood up to preach to the Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost and had seen this amazing outpouring of the Spirit. So here is how Peter explained the fullness of the Holy Spirit that they were observing. He says, Therefore, Jesus, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So it was the exalted Christ who poured forth the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So with all of these connections between Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, it is indeed very strange that men who describe themselves as disciples of Jesus Christ in Acts 19.1 could also say they'd never heard anything about the Holy Spirit. Paul knows there's something seriously wrong here. So when they said they'd been baptized into the baptism or with the baptism of John, Paul uses that to point them to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one, as we said, that John's whole ministry was pointing to. And again, at that point, Paul baptized the believers in the name, into the name of the Lord Jesus. And then we see what happened in verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Now, when you think about it, this really makes perfect sense. Jesus' ministry pointed, or I'm sorry, John's ministry pointed to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ accomplished the salvation for all who would believe in him. And as his earthly life was coming to an end, Jesus pointed his followers to the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the evidence of the fullness on the Spirit that came upon this, this, these disciples when they were baptized just kind of makes sense that that would follow. They had not heard a complete gospel message, so it seems that even though they were described as, as disciples, I'm leaning towards the fact that they probably were not Christians. Now, there's differences of opinion there, but I lean toward the fact that they probably really were not Christians. And then the Holy Spirit, though, gives very visible evidence that they were true believers there uh, in verse 6. Now, you probably also noticed a pattern here. And it's a pattern that we see in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit came in power on the Jewish disciples in Jerusalem at Pentecost. When the gospel went to the Samaritans, Peter and John came to see what the Lord had been doing. They laid their hands on the Samaritan believers, and the Holy Spirit came in power on them. When the gospel went to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit came in power on Cornelius and all who believed. Now the same thing is happening with these believers in Ephesus who only knew about John's baptism. Here's how John Stott described what was happening, uh, quote on your outline. It says, it could be argued that these Ephesus disciples experienced a mini Pentecost. Better, Pentecost caught up with them. Better still, they were caught up into it as its promised blessings became theirs. I think that's a good explanation for why the Lord granted the gifts of tongues and prophesying to these new believers. 
things that were out of the ordinary in the other cities where Paul had ministered. Now, there is one more important connection between the ministry of Jesus and the Holy Spirit that we need to take note of here. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts a person of sin, enlightens the mind to know Christ, and enables the person to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So this is another reason that it seems to me that it's unlikely that these 12 men were truly disciples as they claimed. No one can believe in Jesus Christ for salvation apart from the work of the Spirit. For a person to be saved, Jesus said they must be born again. They must be born of the Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit needs then to, uh, what the Holy Spirit does is, is that he applies Jesus' work of salvation to a person's life. When the Spirit does that, they are convicted of their sin. They know clearly and personally that, that they have fallen short of what God requires of them. The Spirit then enlightens their minds to have an understanding of who Christ is. And, of course, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to always exalt Christ. So in conjunction with convicting a person of sin and judgment, the Spirit also points them to Christ as their hope for salvation from that sin and from that judgment. Then the Holy Spirit will give them the gift of faith so that they can repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And I think one thing to keep in mind here, we're talking about somebody initially becoming a Christian, but, I mean, praise God, the Holy Spirit continues that work of convicting us of sin and leading us to embrace Christ all of our lives. I mean, that continues to go on. We are temples of the Holy Spirit as believers. And so his ministry continues in our life. Every one of us have been convicted of sin this week, probably already this morning, for something. But what the Spirit also does in, in conjunction with the conviction is, again, bringing us to Christ, reminding us that he is the one who has paid the price for that sin, and he is our Lord, so we repent and return. The Spirit continues that work. It's just so, I mean, just to think, I, I love the picture that, that even that word that Jesus used to speak of Jesus Christ as our helper. The Holy Spirit is our divine helper. And your salvation will not begin, your salvation will not continue without his divine help. But praise God, it's there. And he continues to help. So if, the, so if the Holy Spirit truly had not been at work in the lives of the, Ephesian, the Ephesus disciples, then they could not be truly disciples. They could not be truly saved. Okay, there's one other important issue that is brought up in these verses that we need to speak to, and that's the issue of baptism. So point number three, those who have repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ are to be baptized. Like I said, it shows up several times in this passage. Paul asked them about their baptism. They said they were baptized into John's baptism. Paul then speaks about John's baptism in verse 4. It was meant to point people to Christ. So in verse 5, we are told that they were then baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So let's look at a couple things that clarify for us about what Christian baptism is. First is this. Jesus Christ commanded that all who become his disciples by faith are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus said when he gave the Great Commission to the apostles, which we read earlier, verse we read earlier in the service. 
It's interesting here, though, that Paul baptized them into the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, especially from a, from a biblical perspective, that name, the idea of the name, represents a person's character, who that person is, attributes, just represents the person. It's interesting when Jesus said, Great Commission, baptize them in the name of the Father. He didn't say names of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Name singular. Baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, so in other words, baptize them into the character, the attributes of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The character attributes of the Father Father and Holy Spirit are the same as the character attributes of Jesus. It may be, don't know, I'm just guessing here, it may be that Paul baptized these 12 men into the name of the Lord Jesus to further emphasize to them that the Lord Jesus was the whole point of John's ministry. Um, That's a possibility on why he, he baptized him in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's also interesting to note here that literally the text says they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. This signifies a new relationship of one being baptized that the person baptized now has with the Lord. They have been baptized into him, into his name. It speaks of a state of of, uh, professing faith and submission to Jesus Christ, that he's my Savior, he's my Lord, and therefore it's a submission really to the triune God. So baptism is a sign, it's an illustration of the fact that the one being baptized is trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. It's a testimony. The one being baptized is confessing to all who witness the baptism that they are now living their life as a servant of Christ. They have been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now one more thing about baptism. This is a quote from the Baptist Catechism that I think is a good summary of what baptism signifies. For the believer, baptism is a sign of his fellowship with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of his giving up himself unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So baptism is a picture of our fellowship with Christ, like he says, of being engrafted into Christ. It shows us that we're united with Christ in his death. Elsewhere, Paul says, I have been crucified with him. So baptism shows us that we have been united with Christ in his death. When he died, we died. We are united with Christ in his burial. As he was buried, so are we. And, of course, burial is the confirmation of the death that took place. And as Christ was raised from the dead, so we are raised now to walk in newness of life. And this newness of life is characterized by cleansing from sin, being a new creation in Christ, being a committed disciple of Christ. And the baptismal waters illustrate all those things. That's why when we say when someone is baptized, says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism, risen to walk in newness of life. 
Baptism, in many ways, brings together for us the person and work of Jesus Christ in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit, all according to the gracious purpose of the Father. Salvation is of the Lord and a truly gracious and glorious gift for us. Lord, we want to thank you for scriptures that are sometimes not quite as straightforward as some of the other ones are. This was a very out-of-the-ordinary kind of um, uh, report that we, that we have read here from, from Luke. But I thank you of all the things that are included in this passage. It reminds us, like we've said, to be so gracious for the men that you've used in our lives. Well, Paulus was one there, but especially John the Baptist, I'm thinking, who has such an important role, and he understood the importance of his role. Thank you for his example. It reminds us of the importance of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, that he is our Savior. It reminds us of the importance of the Holy Spirit in the work of Christ, but also in our life. Apart from, apart from the Spirit, we do not have faith in Christ because we can't muster that up on our, on our own. We are dependent on the divine helper to grant us the conviction of sin, the faith that we need. Thank you so much for that work. And, Lord, it reminds us again of the importance of our baptism, of just remembering all that was signified in that baptism that you, that you have uh, uh, provided for us and commanded toward us. So, Lord, thank you for these things. Help us to continue to grow in our appreciation of what Christ has done for us and our continued appreciation of what the Holy Spirit continues to do in our life throughout our days. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do that. He paid the price for your sin, for your salvation. I would invite you to receive him. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I need my sins to be taken care of, that I have not done what you want me to do. I have not believed like you want me to believe. So I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to commit my life to him as my Savior, but also as the very Lord of my life. If you would like to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note in your tear-off, or those who are watching with us through the, uh, through the website can uh, connect with us through the website.